That is the sound you never want to hear. That is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means there is a problem. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering you, me, and we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halevi, and I was staying with friends one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the nuclear accident happened there. That's why I produce and host this podcast every week, because I know firsthand that whether you can hear the sirens or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Today is Tuesday, November 22, 2011, day 256 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th, and here is the latest nuclear news. The first one is a very upsetting story because it comes from one of our best contacts and uh, one of the bravest posters in Japan, uh, someone who posts under the name Mokizuki and has the site Fukushima Diary. And on November 14th, uh, a week ago yesterday, Monday, he posted, I received threats from who should never know my address. I'm under surveillance. I'm under their surveillance. I can't post everything I know. The following day, on the 15th, he posted, Today I appeared somewhere official. Four men interrogated me. They wanted to make up a story that I was an international criminal or something. They tried to make me state I was involved in international money laundering, though I only bought an A-bike on eBay. It makes me feel like I'm Alice in Wonderland. Nobody seems to care about radiation around in Tokyo. Once you mention radiation, they call you an ambulance. Anyway, the result of today's interrogation is supposed to come out around the 25th, which is still three days away. Now, as those of you who have listened to this podcast before know, Mokuzuki and Fukushima Diary is one of the best sources, if not the best regular source, for information about what's happening on the ground in Japan. He gets blog posts, he gets tweets, and he gets information from people who don't know where else to put it. Uh, he is asking for um, for help. He's asking for donations because he's preparing to find asylum in another country so he can keep doing this work but feel some sense of safety. And also, if anybody knows how to apply for political safety for somebody who's a nuclear activist, isn't that a frightening thought, uh, and you have that information, please go to Fukushima Diary on, um, uh, that you can find online. On other news, that, by the way, Nuclear Hot Seat has already sent its donation. Uh, the news continues that according to Horeo Uehara, the man who designed Reactor 3 at Fukushima, the China Syndrome is happening right now. He says that since there has been no significant improvement since the earthquake and tsunami devastate, devastated the TEPCO nuclear plant on March 11th, there is no escaping the reality that hot fuel has melted through the pressure and container vessels into the ground. Uehara further described the seriousness of the situation, saying if it reaches an underground water source, then the water supply, the ground, seawater will also be contaminated. Furthermore, if the underground water remains heated for long enough, a, ma a massive hydrovolcanic explosion could occur. Now, hydrovolcanic is not a made-up word to give the impression of a big eruption involving water. It's a geological term referencing particularly violent volcanic eruptions involving the mixture of water with magma. This is not a small or even a simply local concern. In an exceptionally active volcanic region, such as Japan, 
a hydrovolcanic explosion could have devastating and far-reaching reaching effects. Now, this interpretation of uh, uh, the Fukushima plant being in meltdown, meaning in China syndrome, uh, was echoed by Dr. Ian Fairley on a radio broadcast with Dr. Helen Caldicott on October 21st. That can be accessed from If You Love This Planet. Uh, Dr. Fairley, just so that you know, is not only a radiobiologist, he's an independent consultant in the field of radioactivity and the environment and advises environmental organizations, the European Parliament, as well as local and national authorities in several countries. International expert there. So going back to the comments of O'Hara, he said, adding to the danger that we face, there is the radioactive debris that has been spreading in the Pacific Ocean. This is the debris that washed out uh, after the tsunami. It has already reached the Marshall Islands as of the 15th of November, and that is much faster than was anticipated. Therefore, all countries and islands in and around the Pacific are at risk from the flotsam of Fukushima. So this is just an alert to the west coast of the United States. All of the little governments, we are about to lose our beaches, our fishing, our tourist industry, and so many other things. So maybe it's time for those in positions of power and authority to do something. You think that might be a good idea? Okay. In the last week, there have been two accidents on successive days at the Brunswick Nuclear Reactor in North Carolina. On Wednesday, the 16th of November, energy officials and environmentalists uh, reacted to reports of a reactor coolant system leak at Progress Energy's nuclear plant. This is in Brunswick, North Carolina. Now, according to Progress, meaning the Progress Energy, uh, one of their sp so spokespersons, he said, they believe radioactive water is leaking from the top of the vessel. Keep that word top in mind. We'll refer back to it in a moment. Now, according to Tom Clements with Friends of Earth, the person who tracks nuclear issues primarily in South Georgia and Carolina. This is a quote from him. The reason this is significant, meaning the leak, the leak at Brunswick, is because this type of reactor, a boiling water reactor, it goes directly through the core of the reactor where the radioactive material is contained. So that was the report as to the accident on Wednesday. On Thursday, there was another NRC unusual uh, a, a report of an undition, uh, uh, unusual condition at the plant. Sorry, my mouth's not working right today. I'll see if I can get it back in order. Uh, according to the NRC, an unanalyzed condition that significantly degraded plant safety existed on Unit 2 at Brunswick, and uh, they located an elevated drywall leakage, and the plant was shut down. Now, during the leak investigation activities, it was determined that the reactor pressure vessel head was not fully tensioned. So they're talking about the head, which sounds like it would be at the top of the reactor. So if anybody who's ever had a leak in an upstairs bathroom could figure out, if it leaks upstairs, that means that later on it's going to show up coming through the drywall on the first floor. You've got to take care of it both guys. You know, any householder could tell you that. Anyway, two reactors, two consecutive days in Brunswick, which is a GE Mark I reactor, and was smack center in the uh, path of Hurricane Irene. Okay. Um, now, if we wonder sometimes why the information seems skewed against us, here's one of the reasons. It has been shown that two high-profile Fukushima studies were edited by a global warming advocate named James Hansen, who also wrote the article, quote, why America Needs Nuclear Energy, unquote, 
to which I would have pinned like a hole in the head, but he didn't. These were two reports that were uh, mentioned in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and this is very high-level interpretive work with, stat with statistics. Now, I used to work in the field of statistics, totally different arena, and there's a saying in that field. There are three kinds of liars. There are liars, there are damned liars, and there are statisticians, meaning that statistics can be manipulated and maneuvered to show just about anything somebody wants to show. So having someone who's written Why America Needs Nuclear Energy, interpreting the statistics for two Fukushima studies is akin to putting the fox in charge of henhouse security. Then this cheery story from Tennessee uh, from uh, Wednesday, excuse me, Wednesday the 16th, a truck carrying uranium fuel rods was rear-ended on the I-40 highway westbound near U.S. 64 on Tuesday night, November 15th. This again was in Tennessee. Now the good news is no fuel rods fell off the truck because that of course would put it in Homer Simpson territory. Uh, the emergency management agency was not able to say what type of fuel rods were being transported in the truck. Oftentimes uranium rods are used for nuclear power plants and sometimes for hospital radiation therapy. But the EMA also said that vehicles carrying such rods are not unusual in this area. So of course that makes it less to worry about. And this story, which is um, just the height of numbnuts. Now, stick with me on this. I had to compile this from a number of sources. We'll get to our, our interviewee right after this story. Okay. Now, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says strontium-90 found in fish by a nuclear power plant on the Connecticut River is not conclusive indication of presence of strontium-90. In other words, it's there, but the NRC says it doesn't indicate that it's there. Okay. Here's the story. In early August, the Vermont Department of Health revealed strontium-90 was detected in edible portions of fish taken from the Connecticut River just upstream of the Vermont Yankee Power Plant. The sample was just above the lower limit of detection, but th what's significant is that this is the first time strontium-90 had been detected in the edible portion of any fish samples. Now, uh, according to uh, Yankee's Director of Communications, Larry Smith, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that Vermont Yankee is a source for strontium-90, and we have 31 monitoring wells on the site that are tested regularly by them, not by outside people. No groundwater sample from any well at Vermont Yankee has ever indicated the presence of strontium-90 or any other isotope other than tritium. I mean, they admit the tritium's there, but hey, it's radioactive, but pay no attention to that. It's not important. Okay, now, the NRC's response to Congressman Ed Markey, the Democrat from Massachusetts, who's very much on our side. According to the NRC, the licensee has reported to the NRC and made public information regarding past gaseous releases of strontium-90 within legal limits, but river water sampling subsequent to these reported releases have not detected the presence of strontium-90. In other words, it just went poof. NRC went on to say, because no strontium has been found in the groundwater monitoring wells, which of course are monitored by the operating company, um, because no, no radiation has been found, there is no need for further study of possible strontium-90 contamination from Vermont Yankee at this time. But nobody's checking the accuracy of what Entergy is reporting. So Representative Markey asked the NRC to look into whether Entergy was lying in a couple of its reports. And in response, the NRC stated its legal authority to determine the veracity of statements made by the nuclear industry representatives, quote, does not extend to regulating all public statements made by companies that hold NRC licenses. 
This does not mean that the agency is unconcerned if licensee statements to the public are misleading or untrue. Translation, lies. Back to the quote, the NRC believes that all stakeholders involved in NRC-regulated re activities should act in an open, honest, and transparent way, just as the agency seeks to do in its own actions, debatable, and any failure by a licensee to do so could call into question the veracity of licensee information provided to the NRC. So in other words, if energy is caught lying to the public, it might bring into question whether it's been lying to the NRC, but they don't really think it's their job to enforce this or look into it further because, after all, they get 90% of their funding from the nuclear industry. And, by the way, Entergy had no comment on the NRC letter. That's because Entergy was doing exactly, uh, excuse me, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was doing exactly what Entergy wanted them to do. Let's take a break and get some much better news. I am excited today to have on our program for our interview Ben Davis, Jr. Now, Ben authored the upcoming California Ballot Initiative on Nuclear Energy. He is a self-taught legal professional specializing in environmental, election, and nuclear law. He drafted the initial petition that led to the closure of the Rancho Seco nuclear power plant in the late 1980s and has filed many lawsuits concerning energy, rates, and the environment. Ben, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's great having you. So let's get to this. Tell us, what does this ballot initiative propose? This ballot initiative would close our nuclear power plants immediately after it was passed which would happen, which will happen in November of 2012 on the presidential election ballot. Um, it'll keep them closed until the federal government comes up with some way of handling nuclear waste, as it was supposed to have done years ago. Likely that'll never happen is what I'm thinking at this point. So it's likely California will never have an operating nuclear power plant again. So the passage of this initiative. Uh, I mean, this is great. And does it say that as as directly? Does it say, okay, vote for this, and uh, it will shut down the nuclear power plants? Well, by it, I'm assuming you might be referring to the petition itself. Yes, the petition the itself. The petition has uh, language on it that is um, a synopsis of the law that I drafted in the initiative, uh, a synopsis that's provided by the Attorney General. It does say basically that. It's not as clear as I'd like it to be. Um, but a person can understand it, and it will is clear enough that we'll be able to get the signatures on this initiative. Wonderful. So why do we need this as a ballot initiative instead of some other form of action? Well, um, when you say instead of, I'm not sure that it's exclusive in that manner. I, I encourage people that are in the anti-nuclear anti movement to move on all fronts, and luckily in California we're doing that. We have some great activists that are pursuing shutting down our nuclear power plants on other fronts, including a Mothers for Peace that's largely a Jane Swanson um, heading up. Mm -hmm. uh, Rochelle Becker, do you know the name of her group? Alliance for nuclear no, I'm not familiar with her, but let me know and I'll interview her on another program. She's also from San Luis Obispo. And then there's um, Barbara George from Women's Energy Matters. All three of these people are taking different approaches. Um, concerning the NRC in one instance, uh, or the Energy Commission of California, or the Public Utility Commission. These are all different approaches to closing the nuclear power plant. I think mine is the most direct approach because it actually changes the law 
so that um, a nuclear power plant simply can't operate here. But um, I think it's good for, even though we don't want to split up our energy, approaching closing nuclear power plants on all fronts is a good idea. And to the extent you asked me about inspiring and aiding people in um, other states and other countries to close their nuclear power plants, I think it's good to explore all avenues. If they have the option, some states do and some states don't, to do what I'm doing, which mm-hmm. is draft an initiative and pursue it directly. Um, I think that's the area I'd look into first, but I'd encourage them to look into all areas. Now, is this the first attempt that has been made to put a an initiative on the ballot so that our voices, I'm in California as well, so that our voices here could be heard? Uh, no, no. Um, I, well, of course, as you mentioned in introducing me, introducing me, I drafted the initial petition to close the Rancho Seco nuclear power plant, and that was a more local thing. There's a municipal utility district there, which is about the size of Sacramento County. So that was a county-wide effort to close one nuclear power plant. And uh, although I started that, there were others, um, Mike Ramey, Martha Ann Blackman, who followed through with that effort and and deserve some mention. So I'm glad I have the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. But after the um, success of that, or about the time of the success of that, I also filed uh, an initiative similar to the one that I just filed to close California's power plants. That was about 1988. But the the idea was effectively killed by the fiscal analysis done for the petition, something I have to put on the petition people sign that say how much it's going to cost state and local government if the when the initiative succeeds. And that one set such a high price on it back in 1988 that I was unable to garner gas, grassroots support for the initiative. And I was concerned that that might be the case this time. So I went ahead and got that fiscal analysis prior to garnering my grassroots. Hold on. Now, the fiscal analysis, is that something that you create, or is that something that exists within government? No. That's something that the Legislative Analyst's Office of California, um, which is a bipartisan or nonpartisan organization that the legislature uses for many um, analyses of fiscal, the fiscal effects of legislation. Um, As I said, they're nonpartisan, but... Then again, what what really is nonpartisan? Are they more pro-nuclear or less pro-nuclear? I'm afraid there are many in their midst that seem to be pro-nuclear. And what makes you say the analysis that? analysis that I received. Because the, the analysis I received sets, again, such a high price tag, on, an unrealistically high price tag, on closing um, California's nuclear power plants. And I'd say that actually it's an interesting analysis in that in that respect. First, it says that it may cause rolling blackouts. Now, in fact, that seems that is very unlikely. They said the same thing in Japan when this happened that there'd be rolling blackouts for years to come. In fact, uh, ingenuity stopped that from happening. There right. They, there were huge cutbacks on on use of uh, of power, and that was voluntary conservation on the part of the people of the country. Voluntary conservation, and never hurts to remind people that conservation is our greatest natural resource. We can use that in California just as they did in Japan. But more so, um, we have other alternatives in California, too, to, um, to the energy. It's only uh, in the neighborhood of 15% that... Uh, the nuclear power plants provide, and in fact, we have a surplus in California that is mandated by the Public Utilities Commission of about 15% or more. I believe it's 20% that kicked in at the when we had the nuclear. Um, I'm sorry, the energy crisis around 2000. 
So we can cover it in California. That's one of the great things about the position we're in right now is we really don't need these nuclear power plants. So it's a matter of communicating it to the public in such a way that the wording that's on the ballot is not going to deter them from voting yes. I think that can be done, yes. I think, I think that can be done, too. I think that needs to be a good focus. Now, and in, in fact, one of the um, great things about the Occupy movement that is growing on right now is it's bringing people's attention to the collusion between the regulator and the regulated and between the government and the industry um, that shows exactly the flaw in this fiscal analysis that I want the public to see, which is, it wasn't an independent analysis. It was too closely driven by the nuclear industry itself. And that's going to have to be one of the big stories we work to get out, and I will certainly align myself with that particular stream of communications. Now, I, w I want to shift this a little bit because our presence on the ballot is not yet a done deal. What do we here in California need to do to get the initiative that you have worded actually on the ballot for November 2012? Well, I think um, you're aware that we need about half a million signatures, and it's going to take some organization to do that. I'm beginning that. I would like to have it running together already, but I'm hoping by the end of the holiday season, sometime by next Monday after Thanksgiving, to have an actual petition available to people. Mm -hmm. I've reserved a domain name of uh, californianuclearinitiative.com. Wonderful. You should have that initiative in a downloadable form sometime in the not-too-distant future. Okay, so we're going to be able to send people to a site and say, click here, download petition, you know, print out lots of copies of it. Now, yeah, so now I want to make a distinction here. Nobody will be able to sign the initiative online. That's something that's yes. prohibited by law. But you can download an initiative, have that hard copy, the paper in your hand, and sign it and mail it back to a um, my PO, my PO box. That's the way we're going to proceed at first. Okay. So really, anybody who's in the state of California can be um, uh, can be recruited to sign. Now, does somebody have Any to be voter? Yeah. So, so does a person have to be a registered voter? Did you say? Yes, they have to be a registered voter to do it. And the instructions and the limitations on who can and can't sign, mainly just that that you're a registered voter. Um, are all printed on the initiative and will be printed on the website. So it's perfectly clear. A person doesn't necessarily need to have to memorize it. They just need to read it as they get the petition in hand. Okay. Now, given that I, I see the number is uh, 504,760 valid signatures, do you know approximately how many signatures get kicked out once they start examining, you know, and, and seeing if there are duplicates or inappropriate people or things like that? In other words, what's the overage we're going to have to be aiming for? Uh, I've seen that many times. I don't recall exactly. I would hope 10% would do it, but um, I'm not exactly sure. So we should really be aiming in the in, in the neighborhood of 600,000 signatures um, to be yeah. safe. Yeah, that, that sounds good, like a good uh, in-between. Well, I'm in on that one. So well, that's one less signature I need. <laughs> And uh, I emailed you earlier to let you know that everybody in my immediate circle of friends and associates and organizations have already been notified that they have been recruited, not only to sign, but to uh, have those papers available to have their friends sign, and so on and so on. Yes, well, in fact, the way I hope this will circulate is somewhat in the term, we're call, I'm calling it a nuclear chain reaction list. Oh, yes! In which a person like yourself will get a handful of friends 
all of which who will promise upon signing your initiative to get a handful of friends. If you follow that chain reaction, it doesn't take a long time before you get the number we're aiming at. So I'm hoping through that process to be get a, getting these signatures on a voluntary basis without having paid signature gathers mm-hmm. and, a lot less, and in a lot less time than is normally required. I'm counting on the enthusiasm of anti-nuclear activists in California and the fact that we have quite a, quite a groundswell of support to make this work. Well, at this point, I'd like to know if there's anybody who is on this call right now who would like to ask uh, a question of our guest, Ben Davis, Jr., who is the author of the upcoming successful, I'm projecting and intending into the future, California Ballot Initiative on Nuclear Energy and Shutting Down the Nuke Plants. Is there some shy person lurking around in the corner who just has a question they would like to ask? We're gentle, we're nice, we'll listen. Well, Ben, uh, since nobody's jumping in right now, I will take advantage of this opportunity and ask, where can we contact you? How can we stay in touch and get ongoing information on how this initiative is going? Well, the easiest way is um, will be, I hope to within a week or so, have um, CaliforniaNuclearInitiative.com up and running, and that will be the easiest way to get initiatives themselves. I have a P.O. box here in Santa Cruz, California, um, P.O. Box 3844, Santa Cruz, California, 95063. People can send for initiatives there or with any other um, communications they'd like. Um, what about an email address? Uh, I can offer an email, I suppose, which is bendavis54 at gmail.com. They're welcome to contact me that way. At this point, I'm not being inundated, or at least not beyond my control. So as long as that continues, I'll try to respond to emails that I get. Anything else you can think of that we deserve to know or be thinking about in connection with this initiative? Well, yes. Um, there's one of the reasons that I feel uh, this initiative is important and the end of the use of nuclear power plants in California and the United States and in the world is very important, is we don't need the energy. And what we're doing basically as an energy policy in current day, not only considering nuclear energy, but uh, our energy mix is quite homogenous. The people who own nuclear energy and oil and coal are largely similar uh, and the same people. And our energy policy basically is that the United States subsidizes the use of polluting energies, and we don't need to do that. Not only are we subsidizing it now, but we're subsidizing it in a way that our Future generations, our children, their children, are going to be indebted so that we can use energy today. And that is not a fair energy policy. It's really not fair to um, people of the future. And it's not responsible today, and we don't need to do that. We really need to start living within our energy budget um, now. And, And it's a time to turn that corner. And I think to end the subsidies of these Well, too, if you look at the costs of energy today, what we're paying for energy, Mm -hmm. these costs are not based on some theoretical free market economy. Instead, they seem to be based by the the energy creators themselves to maximize the political clout of these energy companies. It's way past dollars and cents now. We're paying for somebody who's overturning our own democracy. And that's why I think the initiative process in particular is a way to approach it. 
going to be very hard to have our Congress or our representatives in our state legislatures overturn in energy industry interests because they rely on these energy industries for the funds to run for office. If we take that out of the mix by going to direct democracy, by going to an initiative, it's something we can do. I'm not on the take. The average voter is not benefiting from this. So I, I think I'm choosing the right way to approach it. Ben, I want to thank you for having chosen this way, for having been such an active activist for so long. Um, after Three Mile Island, I went into shock, and then I went to sleep, and I didn't wake up until after Fukushima. And all through those years, you and so many others like you were actually carrying the torch and doing the battle. So I want to thank you for the work you have done. I want to thank you for the work that you are doing, and I am delighted to be aligning my energy with yours and uh, setting the clear intention that we're all going to be celebrating at least one thing come Election Day in November of 2012. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you doing this radio show also. Well, my pleasure to be doing that. I can't not do it. So I invite you to hang out for the rest of the show because I've got some more nuclear news and some holistic information and just a few activist things that you may or may not be aware of. So just spreading the information, keeping the community together. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Ben. So now back to the news. Um, here in California, in Los Angeles, uh, as of the uh, 16th of November, uh, we were showing radioactivity in spots at 300% of normal background. Now, uh, this came from the Los Angeles-based Eviro Porter, E-N-V-I-R-O-R-E-P-O-R-T-E-R. I believe that's a dot .com. Um, now, California has received some of the lowest overt fallout in the U.S. and Canada, but as of this report, which came after the rainstorm that we had here last Wednesday, which was linked to the, high, the upper atmosphere and the jet stream, which is how the radiation came down, uh, there was a reading, this was shown on a video on YouTube, uh, of, uh, that showed 134 clicks per minute as opposed to uh, CPM. I'm assuming that's clicks per minute. If I'm wrong, please, scientists, forgive me. Um, and uh, that's opposed to a normal background of 44 CPM. And the equation is that three times background equals the start of danger from radioactive exposure. And we started getting that as of last Wednesday here in Los Angeles. So be aware, the same type of a reading uh, was shown in St. Louis, Missouri at the same time. Uh, certainly here in Los Angeles, we're in the rainy season. There's no telling what that's going to do to our radiation readings. Now, uh, as regards Chernobyl, uh, Dr. Helen Caldicott, who's been a, a, a firebrand and an international leader on anti-nuclear issues for well over 30 years now, uh, was speaking on Link TV on a program called Earth Focus. Uh, this actually aired on the 21st of October. But according to Dr. Caldicott, the Chernobyl health effects are the biggest cover-up in the history of medicine. And according to her, it, uh, this is uh, dealing. This is based on information coming from the World Health Organization, the International Atomic Energy Association, and the United Nations. All of which she says are covering up the long-term effects of radiation from Chernobyl. Now, there has been, according to her, a German government study on children under five who lived within five kilometers of the Chernobyl reactors. 
It showed that these children had double the rate of leukemia and a high incidence of solid cancers, plus many deformities, meaning birth defects. And the closer to the reactor they lived, the higher the malignancy rate. She also made the point that nuclear reactors cannot prevent tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, from escaping, and it's highly carcinogenic. This, of course, is in contrast to what was being said about the tritium in the groundwater from uh, Vermont Yankee when the person in the plant said, pay no attention to that, it's not dangerous. Well, here's Dr. Helen Caldicott saying it's highly carcinogenic. And she said that that is probably what's causing the cancers in the children who live near the power plants in Germany. Now on to Japan, where uh, radioactive strontium has been detected in several locations in central Tokyo. Uh, ironically, the highest radiation in this survey was found outside of a government building. Uh, the Japan Science Ministry says that 8% of the country's surface area has now been contaminated by radiation from the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant. That's more than 30,000 square kilometers of the country. Now, they're saying that most of the contamination was caused by the four large plumes of radiation that were spewed out in the first two weeks after the meltdowns, but it does not take into account the further spreading of contamination that's been happened by the government policy of burning the radioactive debris. Uh, it says that some of the radioactive material fell with rain and snow. We know it's particulate matter that creates the precipitation coming down from the upper atmosphere. And uh, these numbers, which uh, were reported by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, are quite a bit higher than the stated numbers of, uh, that have been released by uh, a radiation map that was created by the Science Ministry in Japan in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, that report said that um, estimated that only about 800 square kilometers, only, put that in quotes, uh, 800 square kilometers or 40% the size of Tokyo have been contaminated. Here's the report now saying that more than 30,000 square kilometers of the country have effectively been nuked. This is, of course, having impact on the Japanese food chain. Um, there have been a number of food scares, but now it's getting very real. That radioactive cesium exceeding the government's limit was detected for the first time in rice harvested in Fukushima Prefecture. Uh, about 630 becquerels of cesium per kilogram were found in a rice sample taken from a farm in Fukushima City. Uh, that level is well above the government-mandated limit of 500 becquerels per kilogram of harvested rice, prompting immediate calls to limit shipments from the area. Now, Chief Cabinet Secretary Osamu Fujimura offered uh, Fukushima Governor Yuke Sato to halt shipments of rice from Onami, which is where the samples were sourced. This is according to an agricultural ministry official. The restriction won't be lifted until the safety of the rice produced in the area can be confirmed, the official said. didn't say anything about whether it's denied and it can't be made, um, uh, can't lift the restriction because it's over the limit. Uh, he added that the ban will affect 154 farms that produced 192 tons of rice this year. Uh, the polluted samples were taken from a farm 57 kilometers northwest of the Fukushima Daiichi plant. Now, last month, the Fukushima governor declared that after testing rice samples from all 58 cities, towns, and villages in the Fukushima prefecture, where rice has been grown this year, it was all okay, that all the rice crop was safe. That's what the governor said last year. Now we have tests showing that it is not so. In a related story, Greenpeace says that it has detected radiation in fish sold in supermarkets in Japan. Uh, 
It has detected radiation radiation in uh, the fish sold in Japanese supermarkets, although the radiation levels were still well below the government safety limit of 500 becquerels. I would like to point out here that right now the limit on, uh, on radiation exposure in food in Japan uh, for most product is set at 500 becquerels per, ki- per kilogram. However, in April, that's going to be dropped on certain products down to 15, excuse me, to 50, 50. So why there is a difference between our ability to resist radiation now and what our difference is going to be in April, I don't know what, but right now they are admitting that it's 500 and um, uh, the radiation levels on this fish is still under. However, according to its own research carried out between October 12th and November 8th in eastern Japan, Greenpeace said that 47.3 becquerels of cesium per kilogram were discovered in cod, while traces of radiation were also found in other fish, including tuna. I guess that takes sushi off the list for the duration. Now, this is an item that came from Fukushima Diary, the story that I started out with, with uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just tongue-tied today on the Japanese names, but the, the man who, who posts there, um, that the Minister of Nuclear Power, a man named Goshi Hosono, uh, has been shown having spots on his face that can't be hidden. There were a series of photos that were placed, one of him looking, you know, just normal. Then we see some spots coming out. And then there was a particularly grotesque picture looking like he had measles all over his face. Now, the point is that the spots can't be hidden and that people who entered Hiroshima after the atomic bomb was dropped there had spots like that. It was called, quote, city entering exposure. So, um... Anyway, that's that's a sample of the kind of obscure pieces that we're getting out of Japan that uh, can be very telling from uh, Fukushima Diary. Um, one other piece from uh, Europe, and that is that a lab in Hungary has been blamed with emitting the radioactive iodine-131 that has been blanketing eight separate countries in Europe. However, uh, according to the person who runs the plant, a portion of iodine-131 measured in the atmosphere of Budapest was very likely to have originated from the emissions of isotope Interzet. That's the name of the company. However, he said Hungary could not have been the source of the leakage registered in several European countries over the past few weeks. Uh, he said the Institute had not even been approached by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, for information. And according to uh, Michele Lakatos, um, the spokesperson for the Institute, he said, the amount of iodine-131 measured in neighboring countries cannot have much to do with this because the distances involved rule out that the amount we emit could be registered over there. That's why we have issued this statement to reveal the extent of emission in Hungary, which if someone looks at it, they will see it cannot be the same as what is found in Europe. So the mystery continues. So with all this talk about radiation, I always like to include holistic healing information um, because just because radiation causes cancer, cancer does not have to be a death sentence. Uh, there are ways of combating it by building our health, building our immunity, and directly taking it out of our bodies. So this is uh, a piece that I found on high iodine foods. That the level of iodine, but by the way, iodine is what you need to fill up your thyroid so that if you are exposed to iodine-131 or 137, both of which are radioactive, there will be so much iodine in your thyroid that there will be no space for it to be taken up into your body. So levels of iodine in animal products will vary depending on the type of food given to the animal. 
This is an even more critical time to avoid grain-fed or soy-fed animals. In particular, avoid soy because soy is a, I had never heard this word before, soy is a goitrogen which will prevent iodine uptake to your thyroid gland by anything you eat that has soy in it. So it will keep your thyroid depleted, which leaves it vulnerable to being filled up with any radioactive iodine you might encounter. Other things you can do is to consume foods rich in natural iodine because that will help protect the uptake of radioactive, prevent the uptake of radioactive iodine-131. Um, other supplements are iron inhibits the absorption of plutonium, vitamin B12 inhibits cobalt, and sulfur in some form is a preventative for sulfur-35, a product of nuclear reactors. So going back to iodine, the best natural sources include uh, chlorella, which is a green food, it's algae-based, bladder rack, which is an herb, Sea vegetables, including kelp and dulse, be careful with any sea vegetables that either, if they were sourced from the Pacific, that they are dated before March 11th, or that they are sourced from other than the Pacific Ocean. Among the foods that we can be eating, blueberries, bananas, prunes, watermelon, papayas, pineapples, mangoes, it sounds like a grapefruit salad. Vegetables would include asparagus, garlic, onions, eggplant. We could also use oats eggs, liver, raw goat milk, yogurt, and says here salmon. Salmon is suspect because it, so much of it comes from the northwest and has to swim through the Pacific in order to get there. So be careful around salmon. Finally, uh, yeah, this report uh, suggests green peppers, cilantro. Cilantro in particular is very good for leaching heavy metals out of the body. Uh, cilantro, Swiss chard, Green food supplements, these are really good because this puts a lot of good stuff together in a very concentrated form. Tomatoes and, again, watermelon is mentioned. So one can have a pretty good diet based on this. Uh, with the food products, uh, please be as certain as you can that they have not been fed, um, they've not been fed soy. So we've had a huge shot of activist material or activism information today, um, courtesy uh, Ben and uh, the report on California. But here are two other things for you to think about. First of all, uh, there's going to be a media conference, Fukushima, the lessons of nuclear power and the media. It will take place on Saturday, December 3rd, between 10 and 4 at San Francisco State University. This will be at Burke Hall 28. I will post this on the Nuclear Hot Seat various sites. There will be a lot of speakers. There will be activists there. There will be ways for you to participate in understanding how the media has been um, not exactly our friend in getting word out about uh, the various problems with, um, with nuclear energy, nuclear power plants, and specifically in the wake of Fukushima. So that's that event uh, from the No Nukes Action Committee. Uh, you can access them. I'll just give this to you quickly. Their website is nonukesaction.wordpress.com. And again, I will post that nuclear hot seat um, later today. That will be up on the um, Facebook page, which is a group page. You can get there. And this report from three of our correspondents in Japan who are all uh, in approximately the same area, from Kathy Iwane, from Yukitaka Yasuzawa, and Maurice Dumas. Uh, that last weekend there was a huge nuclear demonstration in Fukuoka City. There were over 15,000 people and almost zero press. Now, apparently this was such an enormous um, event for the city 
um, you could talk pointed out that the population of Fukuoka City is 1.5 million. So the people attending the demonstration were about 1% of the city's population. Imagine if 1% of your city's population showed up for demonstration for anything, let alone anti-nukes. Now, according to Maurice, it was very exciting, and she gave a picture of what it looked like. There were farmers there selling organic produce, booths set up for Fukushima children's support. They're still trying to get the kids out. There was music, African drumming, and a good panel of university professors talking about radiation, its effects, how Fukushima will not return to normal, and also information on renewable energy. That's what they put together, and even the particularly shy, not forward-putting-themselves people of Japan are starting to be active in this way. What can you do in your local community to put together information and action and activity? Something for all of us to be thinking about. So uh, just one further tip, and that is that the speech that I did for TEDx Pasadena on October 22nd was supposed to be up and online today. Uh, unfortunately, it's not yet, but it will be soon. And for those of you familiar with TED videos, it's got that little flippy thing that goes around in the beginning with the TED logo, and then it goes, wah, and then I get to speak. I'm very excited to be seeing this. So that will go up on the site, and I'll let you know when that's available because it's an 18-minute primer on why we need to be concerned with nuclear issues from the personal to the political to the global to the future of life itself. So doing the nuclear math, this is day 256 for each of the three melted-down nuclear reactors at Fukushima, meaning that there have been 768 nuclear leak days since Fukushima began. That's over two years of radiation leakage. If you want to do a funky kind of math and divide the 768 nuclear leak days by the 10 leak days of Chernobyl, you come up with an excess of 76 Chernobyls that have happened over there. Whether that fits or not, it's just an interesting way of looking at it. And remember, they're already in China syndrome, and this is not yet over. So this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 22, 2011. You can find us and links to previous programs by going to the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat group page. The tech problems with NuclearHotSeat.com have just been solved, and I will be updating the site with all the things that I missed while I was locked out, so you'll have the latest information, and I've got some blog posts to go up as well. We are also available on iTunes. You can subscribe for free, so you never need miss a single podcast. It will come to your email inbox. Now, if you are on the ground and are near a story or hear a story or information about nuclear reactors or nuclear energy in your area, please join our growing army of on-the-ground reporters around the world. You can send me a message on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page, and I promise I will get back to you. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not Go back to sleep. Be well. Be safe. In the States, happy Thanksgiving to everyone, and I'll speak with you again next week. Bye-bye.